This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Ali, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Under the Microscope. My name is Joanna and this month's episode is centered around the importance of modeling public health to science policy. We interviewed two modeling experts, Professor Ayas Heider, who is currently an assistant professor at the College of Public Health of Ohio State University, and Professor Ashley Chu, who is an assistant professor at the Dalai Lana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. We first start off with Professor Heider, who provides critical insights into the relevance of community-centered modeling, where models are co-created, personalized, and relevant to the community's needs. I just wanted to start off with, you know, what was your journey into science? Why did you decide to do public health research? And, you know, maybe you can talk about some of the things that you're currently working on. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So I'm an assistant professor here in the College of Public Health at Ohio State and also core faculty in the Translational Data Analytics Institute. I think the way that I got started in science was in biology class in high school where I was just like, the way it works was just amazing. And I think I also had really nice teachers. I didn't really come from a science back family, but I always you know, knew that that I was just amazed by biology. I started my undergrad at Queen's University, actually, in one of the first programs in Canada that they had called biomedical computing, where you learn computer programming and biology and chemistry at the same time. But I think what really got me into public health was completely by accident. And accidents are great. So the story goes that in Canada, this was probably before your time, Joanna, that there used to be a grade 13 in Canada called OAC. So uh, during that time, you get a co-op. And my co-op period, I picked an application or a potential location to do an internship uh, called Departmental Laboratory Medicines. I was like, this is so cool. I'm going to get to work with Petri dishes and pipettes. And then it turned out when I got there, there were three women, and this is early 2000, who were there. And they're like, well, we were expecting a girl. And I said, why? And, and, and I kid you not, they said, well, this is a secretary's position in the Department of Laboratory Medicine. And so you don't get any of that stuff you thought you would do. You just get to photocopy paper, faxes, filing, and that's it. So I said, okay, well, I'll do it because maybe I'll find, you know, interesting case reports from physicians and whatnot. I did that for two weeks and it turned out one of the secretary's boss was the infectious disease lead at the hospital. And he's like, hey, stop wasting your time doing this stuff. Come with me. And he handed me the little book of the little red book of SAS. And he's like, learn SAS and help me with my analysis. And since then, I uh, every summer in my entire undergrad, I worked with him looking at clinical epidemiology studies and just became like this statistical assistant to epidemiologists. And so when it came time for me to decide where I wanted to do my grad school, I had to choose between public health or biology. And I chose biology because I thought that it's great to be a theoretical ecologist where you get paid to think. Like literally, this is like me at the age of 23 thinking like, it's nice to be paid just to think, right? But in a roundabout way, I ended up working on pandemic modeling. And I was working on health disparities and modeling pandemics in Montreal for my PhD at McGill. And then since then, I have been just on this journey in, in public health uh, training, going to Yale and then going to University of Toronto, where I did completely different things. So at Yale, it was looking at birth outcomes and air pollution in environmental epidemiology. And then at uh, University of Toronto, it was looking at cost effectiveness analysis and health services research. And I think what really happened is that I, I think at the systems level and then so I think what happened is inadvertently I spanned the arc of public health training by getting 
my training in these different areas of public health and then now what I do I can fit into any public health department pretty much you know I can kind of work with biostatisticians but mostly I can work in the epidemiology department in the health services research department in the health promotion health behavior department and the environmental health department and so the way our college up I had a time choosing where I fit in and to this day I don't know where I fit in health and I've given up even trying to figure that out so what I do now is work on systems modeling approaches for public health practice and what that means is really doing a lot of community engagement work up front uh, understanding the problem with the community doing different kinds of analytics and modeling in the middle and then translating that research into action so i work on reproductive health and birth outcomes work i do work on food insecurity i do work on the opioid epidemic and i kind of gave up working on infectious diseases after my graduate training uh, after my phd work but since the last one year i've been completely in the trenches for covid response at the state level working with school districts on surveillance work with them now working on vaccine accessibility and mapping and modeling accessibility for vaccinations and so yeah that's that that's been my journey so far here professor hyder dives into the necessity of community engagement and advocacy between modelers and the community they are modeling By doing so, models being created can adequately address and solve the problems at hand. That's great. I've looked into other people who work in public health, and I feel like a lot of the ones that I saw worked on infectious diseases. And so I was kind of surprised how you just had your hands in maternal mortality and opioid epidemic and food insecurity. I guess they're all like different societal and health topics, but you can apply the same mathematical and statistics approach to each of these problems is what i'm understanding at least that's yeah you know the problems at at the basic level the problems are the same and one thing i learned from this pandemic was that modelers were not prepared to address equity issues they did not account for them properly in their models and i think one of the reasons they failed in that is because they did not consider the importance of community engaged research you know community engagement really gets you out of your ivory tower out of your office and and into the community and it's like funny right because we go and we live in our own communities but we never think about how our research is going to affect the communities in which we live in or grew up in and so i think that's what i'm trying to bridge the gap between modeling and and community engaged research where i've got the modeling training really well and i'm for examples through these different health outcomes that i'm studying the importance of community engagement and, and bridge that gap with modeling I think it's really interesting that you mentioned community engagement. I feel like a lot of scientists are like we don't really interact with we don't really like talk to people. Like I don't have time yeah. to I don't have time yeah. to talk to people, you know, outside of my research. Yeah. I'm like really fortunate to live in my own little academic bubble where I do what I love to do. I think this happens a lot especially in biology and maybe because now I am in a hardcore very very basic sciences, it's very very hard to think about how your research can impact people you know yeah um, no yeah. you you have to lean in honestly this is one of the things about community engaged research is for me who was never trained in community engagement i had to go out of my way to find those opportunities it also meant that i had to make a lot of mistakes in in doing some of that work and learn from my colleagues So it it is about training and and I think that in our disciplines we don't give enough training to these different areas because academics advocacy is frowned upon in, in several areas it's like you cannot be an academic and advocate at the same time or the other thing you hear is if you're an assistant professor get tenure 
and then become an advocate. You know, then you're going to have time. And I think what I've struggled with throughout this entire pandemic has been I'm not going to get tenure because I'm doing so much service. I'm not going to get tenure because I'm doing this advocacy. But then I see on the flip side what needs to get done and how public health departments are struggling on the front line. Like they're tired to their bones of this pandemic. And I feel like everything I can do with the resources I need to bring to the table and help out whether I get tenure or not. It's just something I feel very strong that I have to do. I'm really curious to know about what was this moment in your life that inspired you to be more involved in community engagement? I really don't hear yeah. that many scientists talk about it at right. a lesser level. Right, right. I think what the, the, the pinnacle moment for me was when I started, had a chance encounter with Dr. Casey Hoy, who is a faculty director for the Initiative on Food and Agricultural Transformation here at Ohio State. And he introduced me to the topic of food insecurity, which is something I never thought I would do research in. I was just blown away that food insecurity exists, that it's one in five to one in six children are food insecure with all the abundance and everything that we have. And I said, okay, well, I'm a modeler. What am I going to do with community engagement? But what I realized is a lot of the models for food insecurity were built based on just a review of the literature and not the lived experience of people, of the frontline staff. And so I started looking into this approach called community-based participatory modeling, which tries to bridge the gap between system dynamics modeling and community engagement. So I think that was the first project that really did it for me. And then when we started talking about infant mortality, I, I learned about structural racism and, and about reproductive justice. And all of these are topics that come from community engagement. The other thing that really piqued my interest as a modeler, we take qualitative information and integrate that with the quantitative knowledge that we have in and so that that was the other push that i had is if we can make it work we can develop so much richer models and more relevant models to the community that can help them think through problems and, and pick interventions and, and potential solutions to really complicated problems yeah yeah absolutely one of the things that really struck me was your point about how people in academia fear becoming an advocate on their way to tenure. So can you touch on for a moment about what helped you sort of overcome that fear of not thinking like everyone else about the implications of being an advocate early on, maybe on your career trajectory? Because I feel like it, it might be stopping people, but it might not even be a real fear or any real threat. <laughs> you know, I've also been humbled by seeing other colleagues in other colleges like social work and other places who have been promoted and, and did get that. And I was in a place where I thought, no, I, I don't think I can do any COVID-related work. I need to focus on their work and, and just get those papers out. Coincidentally, last year was the year that I had the most number of publications, you know, so I, I really do consider that as a blessing that somehow I wasn't able to find that time and, and it happened. The other thing is that in our college, they gave an extension on our tenure clock. So I took advantage of that and said, okay, I have some breathing room and, and, and I can do that. And I think the third Thing that did it for me to say, okay, just it'll come, it'll come, is it, it's just the work that needs to be done. I was on calls with my public health colleagues who I'd been working with who are in the health departments, and I was just seeing their dedication and, and how hard they were working. Despite everything, the lack of support, the lack of resources, the lack of sleep, 
they were just at it because the bottom line for public health is the public's health. It's it's not tenure, it's not a raise, it's not ego, it's it's none of those things. So I was like, whatever happens, happens. It's not in my control. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And you know, I think that sort of worldwide when it comes to how we see scientists and society, there needs to be a cultural shift. And I think the pandemic had hidden blessings and maybe one of them was that a lot more scientists, you know, realized their bottom line, maybe for the first time. Even if they weren't in public health, you can still realize that bottom line. And yeah, we're we're very grateful that you could bring that that insight. You just have to find how you can help. I think that desire has to be there. There are so many people who need help and you know, whatever privilege we have ourselves, what is it if we're not using it for good? We might as well not have it because if we're not gonna use it for good, then what's the point, right? Shifting gears, you kind of mentioned how a lot of your public health colleagues were, you know, just working so hard during the pandemic. And I was just wondering, what kinds of things do public health modelers do? Like, you know, mm-hmm. how much interaction do you guys have with policymakers or communi- communicating your science to people who make decisions on people's health? Yeah. This is a great question. In my case, I had pre-existing relationships with our local health departments and their leadership on working on other projects. And so I was able to leverage leverage those relationships to quickly get things going. So I'll give you the example. I started CATS, which stands for COVID-19 Analytics and Targeted Surveillance System for Schools. In this work, we brought together school districts public health departments and academics like myself to provide, to develop, to prototype, deploy, and scale surveillance system for school districts here in central Ohio. Now, it was a lot of work to do this data together, but to identify how this data that we're bringing together, these models that we're developing, how are they used for decision-making is an ongoing process. And I think without active engagement, modelers are going to get left behind. Their dashboards, their code is just going to sit on shelves or GitHub and and, and no one's going to use it. For me, it was really partnering up with the right people who could uh, help me with, with that kind of engagement and keep it going with the project management. And I kind of stay in my lane, which is doing the analytics, doing the modeling, developing the dashboard. That's what really helped. It was really active engagement. And it was also throwing away your ego, basically, because there are so many politics involved in schools and this pandemic. We just said, we're going to do public health surveillance, and and that's what we're going to do. What are the needs of parents? What are the needs of the school superintendents? That's going to be responsive to. I have opinions on, on all of those things, but I keep them to myself or I share them on my Twitter feed. But I don't, you know, push them on superintendents or local health departments or other parents. So I think a lot of it is knowing yourself and then knowing when you need help of others who are better at certain things and then getting their help. The second half of the interview with Professor Hyder focuses more on the science of modeling. What sorts of assumptions get incorporated into models? And what is the difference between predictive models and explanatory models? Yeah, that goes into my next question, which is regarding the accuracy of models. I think initially in the beginning of the pandemic, there was like a lot of models that were like, I don't know too much about this, maybe you know more, that weren't predicting how the case's trajectory was going to be like over the coming months. I think some of them were like, oh, this pandemic is going to be over by June. And it wasn't. It's a year in now. Still still not done. And so how how can we ensure the accuracy of models? It sounds to me that one of the solutions is for modelers to engage more with their community and to engage more with policymakers so that they could maybe input some of these assumptions into their models 
But I also know that if you put too many assumptions into your models, that makes it super complex and uncertain. So what is like the right approach here? Do you want to make your model simple? Do you want to make your model with several assumptions based on all this evidence that you have? And, you know, are models going to be more accurate with more modelers engaging with what they're modeling, essentially? Right. Right, right. No, those, those are great questions. So let me share with you something. When models for pandemic planning were created, were developed and, 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 and published and whatnot, the maximum amount of time that was put in in their parameters for closing down schools was six to eight weeks. Maximum. We never expected that schools would be closed for about a year in some places. Be- and, and, okay, so, and, and they have been, right? So, so why is that? Well, the other thing that we never anticipated in our models, at least the majority of the models that I've seen for pandemics, is that the government would magnificently as they did in terms of being late to getting testing out in terms of muddling the message about safe, you know, spacing and other mitigation strategies, in prioritizing politics and and economics and power and agency over public's health. Those were never incorporated into models. So a lot of the models that showed that, hey, it'll be over by this time, they were unrealistic because they were grounded in epidemiological and biological data, but they were not grounded in social and political and psychological and behavioral and economic data. And so now you can say, okay, well, we should add all these other things to our models, right? And and I would say, no, you should still your models, start them off simple, but Bring the community that is going to be acting upon your models into the model making process so that they understand why are you using this data point and not that data point? Why are you making this assumption and not that assumption? So that we build confidence in the model by bringing the community along that's going to be using that model. Now, what happens is that the policymakers who you bring along to do that, they will change. I lived through the 2009 pandemic, the H1N1 pandemic, that was in quarantine. What I learned from that experience was that I know why that was important to quarantine, but for someone who doesn't know about these things, imagine why they would be like, I'm going to get fired if I don't go to my job. I'm going to uh, you know, not be able to pay my mortgage or pay my rent if, if, if I uh, don't pick up that second shift or that other shift, even in a high-risk setting. So I think some of these on-the-ground situations were not incorporated into models that well. And I, and I think when people did try to incorporate them, they were brushed aside by the infectious disease modeling gatekeepers, the editors, the academic editors who would control what goes into the different journals, the peer reviewers, because the importance of health disparities, inequities, the systematic inequities that exist in our society was not taken into account into our models. So I think, yes, you can go for accuracy and precision and whatnot, but but I like to think of it as, as validation. There's like 20 different types of validation. We gotta do each of those because when your model is gonna be used for decision making, it's gonna it's gonna impact millions of people. And so you better be sure that your model is developed in a way where people can understand it, people can replicate it, people can adjust it as needed, and people can keep updating it as the situation changes. So I think one of the things that's going to happen now is that we're going to be able to better incorporate some of the social media data, some of the cell phone data into our models so that they're more real time and are giving us a better picture. But even there, you need to be really careful because who's on social media and who isn't. 
So there are biases that are going to creep into our model that are going to affect their, the uncertainty in their estimates for who's going to be affected. So I think we need to do it very carefully. We need to have a real conversation as a community. Why are we modeling? Why are we doing it? Josh Epstein, uh, a prolific modeler at NYU, has given 17 different reasons of why model. And I think anybody interested in modeling should go read that book by, should read that article. It's called Why Model by uh, Joshua Epstein. And, and I think it really gives you an appreciation for models can do what they cannot do and what they should never be used to do in some cases. Professor Heider's answer regarding the accuracy of models can be summarized into four main points. First of all, start your models off simple, but integrate data from the community into your assumptions. In addition to accuracy and precision, it's important to validate your model because if it's used for decision making, it's going to affect millions of people. With regards to COVID-19 prediction models, several of them were unrealistic because they were based in epidemiological and biological data, but they failed to factor in social, political, behavioral, and economic data. Social media and cell phone data can be used nowadays for better accuracy in models, but they still have their own biases. Joshua Epstein's article why model will be linked in the resources page and newsletter for this episode. I think you've touched on the topic of the predictive power of models. How can you make a model that has a strong predictive power? You've mentioned that you do system science based modeling. And so having right. this very holistic approach, do you think that increases the predictive power? Right. Yeah, if you read that article by Josh Epstein, it actually clearly delineates models into two, two big categories and then he goes into other reasons. But those two categories are prediction and explanation. Prediction is not the same thing as explanation and explanation is not the same thing as prediction. So I want to be able to predict what the weather is going to be like tomorrow so I can make a decision about what to wear. If I want to explain the weather, I would not use a weather model. I would use something completely different, right? So, so in public health, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to explain or are we trying to predict? Sometimes explanation helps us develop a better predictive model because then we can target interventions to specific subpopulations. If we don't understand all the different factors and their relationships between each other, what we end up doing is putting our thinking into simpler models. And this is not a riff on statistical models. I think they're great, but I think they're great for prediction. Sometimes they're good for explanation, but I think more powerful models for explanation are these uh, conceptual uh, models that lend themselves to some different types of simulation. So for example, one of the things I'm looking at is the increasing gap in the infomortality rate between black and white babies. And so why is that gap increasing? Well, it's increasing for a number of reasons, but we keep doing things in Ohio to address it. And we're not making that big of a dent. Well, why isn't? Why aren't we? It's because we're not addressing the things that explain the gap, why the gap is widening. We're not addressing those because we're not talking to the right stakeholders in the system that leads to that widening gap. And the people who are in that system are not in public health. They're not in the healthcare system. They are in social work. They are in the justice system. They are in the school education system. They are in the economic development systems. And so system science helps to bring these different perspectives together and says, okay, guys, look, how are we going to close this gap? When you get these different stakeholders to give their mental model of what is causing this gap, then they all start seeing, oh, 
So what you do down the road affects what I do, and what I do then in the next generation affects what you do. Ah, okay. So if I want to, we want to close the gap. We all have to do our part, pull our own policy levers in our own sectors, but keeping in mind that this is the gap that we want to close. To summarize, Dr. Heider says a few critical things. First, we learn that statistical models are best at predicting events, but aren't great at explaining them. In order to explain why something happens, you have to talk to people in local communities and get insight about the real source of the problem. Once you connect the dots, then you can start building computational models that are closer to reality. Once you have the model, you can start changing the parameters to reveal which combinations result in a more positive outcome. So system science helps to explain, but then if you're able to get data on these different factors from those different stakeholders, you can develop a more predictive model that is useful for planning purposes, but it needs to be validated with the community and used with caution because when we develop a model, it's based on the current state of the system. And if something else tomorrow changes, that's going to cause a big effect in the system. We need to be able to change that. So modeling should never be a one-time process. It's a cyclical process that keeps on improving and then being responsive to what the decision maker needs. So I think, you know, that's, that's where system science can really help but we need to be really careful that it's not okay if an algorithm or a predictive model gets wrong something in public health. And companies and consulting firms who do a really good job of predictive analytics, they don't incorporate bias into their models. They don't do the community engagement to identify the, the right predictors into their models. And so, yes, your, your model predicts something great, but open it up. Like, don't let it be a black box. So I, I think it's an open question right now on the sort of the relationships and the tensions that are going to be coming up between modeling, between data, between prediction, between policy making, and between impact in public health settings. You've identified all these problems with current predictive models, and I was just wondering if there's any improvement that is currently being made or will be made in the future. Are people actively recognizing these problems? I think the way to answer that question is, who cares about models getting better? I think public health care, but what's their power to do something about it? I think decision makers care to an extent. They have really high power, but they may not be really interested in, in making this happen. Whereas modelers in public health have really high interest in making this happen, but not a lot of power in making it happen. Now, funding agencies, they probably have high power and high interest. And so if you kind of plot these things out on the X, Y axes, right? Interest on the bottom, power on the other, you often then see who are the people who are trying to solve this problem and where are they now, but where do they need to go? So who are the people that you need to move? Really, you're going to get the problem solved when people are high interest, high power. So what role does modeling play in a society? I think it is that existential question that modelers, especially in public health, have to answer. What I have seen is that the way around it is to find an advocate in a policymaking a setting who can advocate for a modeling. What I would say to any modelers listening to this is that they need to do that active outreach right now to build those relationships with the decision makers. We have a pandemic going on and now is the time to leverage these relationships and say, okay, we own up to the models when they were wrong. Don't just say, oh, next pandemic, we'll, we'll pull out our model again. Work in the meantime to build processes in our institutions right now where modeling will always have a place at the table. And then work on training the next public health workforce to understand the good and the bad of different types of modeling 
so that when they are the health commissioner, when they are the epidemiologist in a public health department, they're going to be able to interpret this work and be able to communicate to decision makers and be the translators for us. We now transition to our interview with Professor Ashley Chu, who is an infectious disease epidemiologist and mathematical modeler at the University of Toronto. She provides further insights and explanations on how to build models and the transdisciplinary nature of modeling. The first question we have is just basically about yourself. We want to know how you got into science. Why did you decide to study public health? What kind of research are you doing right now at the moment? I studied science in undergraduate. I had a I have a degree in biochemistry, and I actually have a master's degree in biochemistry, and was doing lab research. And <laughs> didn't really like the research part. I loved the analysis, but the actual doing of the doing experiments wasn't really my thing. I was studying infectious diseases in mice, and I, I actually have <laughs> a pretty strong phobia of rodents. So it wasn't really a, a good project for me to be working on, I guess, in hindsight. But, you know, it was, so I went through this period of time where I was working as a lab technician after I graduated with my master's degree in biochemistry and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life and was always looking at job ads. And all of the jobs that were interesting to me were required a degree in epidemiology. And I didn't really know what epidemiology even was (laughs) until I started realizing, well, I'm interested in these jobs and I did research and, and realized that, you know, in order to work in that area, I would need to have another degree. So I went back to school and did my master's of public health and really fell in love with mathematical modeling and particularly communicable disease modeling. So understanding how diseases spread in populations and using math to, to try and study and analyze it. And I ended up working for a few years at the University of Toronto and then went back to school for a PhD and and then have been working both in um, the private sector as well as more recently at the University of Toronto doing mathematical modeling of communicable diseases. I've worked on a bunch of different diseases. (laughs) Right now, most of my research is focused on COVID. But before COVID, I was really interested in sexually transmitted infections and thinking about you know, how we can use different interventions to try and curb their transmission. And these days, as I said, you know, really focused on COVID-19. And I've been doing a lot of, I would say, policy-relevant modeling. So my background is not in math. I'm you know, a health sciences person. And so I don't really do really theoretical stuff. What I'm interested in is, is thinking about how do we apply concepts from modeling and from communicable disease epidemiology to the real world. And so throughout the pandemic, have been doing work, you know, first of all, thinking about, you know, what the pandemic is going to look like and, you know, what we might expect to see and also think about how we might apply different interventions to better control it. I kind of also wanted to explore a little bit about in terms of what you said about modeling interventions. I don't know anything about modeling, but there's like models that explain how a disease spreads. And then I guess you have models that maybe provide a scenario where you can have an intervention to stop that spread. Do you like marry those two concepts together into one model? And in terms of interventions, you know, this is this is a lot of questions, but in terms of interventions, like what kinds of interventions? Are we talking about like policies that can be enacted or, you know, people's behaviors? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a lot there. In terms of the sorts of models that exist, I mean, I think what people are most familiar with are forecasting models, which are the models that, you know, are really predominant during COVID-19, which is, you know, so-and-so announces that there are going to be 200,000 deaths. And, and, and those models are really meant to try and help us understand the sort of broad contours of an epidemic. So in a completely susceptible population, when you have a new disease, if you don't do anything, what's likely to happen? And then what modelers like to do is what are called counterfactual scenarios. And really what that is, is it's thinking about parallel universes. So, you know, you can imagine a world where we did nothing. We have this new infectious disease and we just let it spread in the population. And then 
we want to compare that to different worlds, one where you know we respond really strongly and maybe we never even see an outbreak because we identify it really quickly. And then in between those two worlds are all of which are sort of these scenarios that represent more realistically the world that we live in. We respond when we have a new infectious disease because people are scared, our behavior changes. We have policies that are put in place. And so those models can help us understand the possible impact of these different changes over time. But again, they're not meant to really predict the future. They're meant to help us understand what the future might look like. So as much as they're using math and they have numbers and they seem very quantitative and precise, I like to think of them more as qualitative tools to help us understand, and particularly to help policymakers understand what we're dealing with and what the future might look like if we do or don't act. And so one of the things that's been really interesting during the pandemic has been people pulling up models and saying, well, you predicted that, you know, this was going to happen and it didn't happen. And from a modeling perspective, that's not really news because we don't want our models to come true, particularly the worst case scenarios. We're, we're doing those scenarios so that we can prevent those futures from happening. And so that's a sort of model where you're modeling, first of all, just the disease and understanding how it will spread in the population. And then you're putting in interventions that, that might change how the disease transmits. And those can be you know, policies or they can be behavioral interventions. And you know, if you think about a policy like a lockdown, you know, ultimately that's changing people's behavior. So they're connected, right? So the policy level trickles down into the individual behavior level. But, you know, models are, are also used for other things. They're used for shorter term projections. So things like planning at a hospital level, how many ICU beds are, re are going to be occupied in the next week or the next month based on the trends that we see. And they're also used for really specific policy decisions and planning. And this is, a, I think, an area where models have been really useful, but probably less prominent. You, know, you don't really hear about this in the news, but if you're thinking about you know, needing to test and trace for cases of COVID-19, you need to figure out what sort of resources you're going to need in terms of how many tests you're going to need, how many people are you going to have to test, how many people are you going to have to contact trace, and figure out the resources for that. And models can help with that as well. And that's something that I and my team have been involved with. But it's less of the scary epidemic curves about this is what the future is going to look like and more about basically thinking through scenarios and, and helping with planning. So I have several questions from what you said, but maybe let's just start off with the first one. How do you build a model? Like what goes into it? We talk about all these factors that you take into consideration, like the policy side, people's behaviors, how policy influences behaviors and the transmission rate of the disease itself. You know, what do you put in first? Is it accurate when you put in all these different factors or not? So when you're building a model, you start simply and you add complexity and you can build really, really complicated models and you can build really simple models. And again, depending on the questions you're trying to answer, you may need that complexity and you may not. And there's always a trade-off there because the more complicated you make a model, the more data that you need to put into that model and the harder it can be. To, to really trust those results because it gets so complicated that sometimes you lose that transparency. And in general, you want your model to be as simple as possible while also capturing the complexity of the system that you're trying to model. At the very sort of fundamental level, if you're building any sort of communicable disease model, you, you need to start with your population. So you if you think of the human population, the simplest model is something that's called a Susceptible Infectious Recovered, or SIR model. And basically, you can divide the entire population into one of three states. So you're either susceptible to a disease, you're infected with it and infectious to other people, or you've recovered from your infection and you're now immune or protected from infection. And so you can actually get a lot of insights by modeling 
using these sorts of models. And basically, the way that you make it specific for a specific disease is you need to understand the, the transmissibility of a particular infectious disease and how long someone is infectious for, and do they have durable immunity from that infection or do they become resusceptible? You can build the, those relatively simple models with they don't require a lot of data or a lot of what we would call parameters. So those, those data that feed into the model. And they work good enough for, for a lot of things. Then you start adding complexity in terms of, you know, your population. You might say, well, the, you can't just model the entire world's population as, you know, a single group of compartments. You might want to adjust for age. You might want to account for different occupations because different, you know, depending on your occupation, you may have different mobility. And, and that's where things get complicated. And then similarly, if you're modeling health outcomes, you know, if you want to model the likelihood that someone ends up in the hospital or dies, you have to start adding on these, these additional pieces. But, you know, fundamentally, you can sort of describe these disease systems simply and then, you know, add in the complexity. It's really a matter of, you know, what you're trying to do, how much time you have and how much data you have. That was such a detailed explanation. And so since you've talked about working on COVID this past year, do you have any comments on our current models of COVID-19 transmission? Are they simple models that are able to accurately predict transmission rates or are the current models that are really good at predicting number of cases more complicated? Can you just comment on that? I mean, there are a lot of models that exist and some of them are really complicated. Some of them, you know, we were talking about really simple models. You know, there are models out there that model individual people and how they interact with other people in their household and out in the community and, and you know, air travel. There's this range of, of models. And I think what we've seen in general, and this is a bit of a, a sweeping statement, but They've been okay at predicting what's going to happen in the short term, but have been less good with the longer term projections. And I think that that's not a bad thing because the thing that's really, really hard to model is human behavior. And it's not predictable. And throughout this pandemic, our reactions to this new infectious disease spreading in our population has changed over time. So initially, everybody was was quite scared. When we started seeing cases increase in our communities, people were very likely to stay home and minimize the amount of contacts they had with other people. And that that fear has changed. People are fatigued now. They're less likely to, to adhere to different measures. We didn't really know a few months ago if we were going to have a vaccine. And then once we knew that we did have vaccines, we didn't really know what the rollout was going to look like and how quickly people would get vaccinated. And so, you know, trying to predict, if you were to think back in December or just say November, and we're building a model of what the world would look like in terms of COVID in March, you would be wrong, I think, because you wouldn't have predicted that we would have a vaccine. You wouldn't have predicted different places had different measures in place. And so that's really where the challenge comes with these is that, you know, describing the virus's behavior is not that complicated, but describing human behavior is incredibly complicated. I'm just curious, what are some ways to, to possibly even factor that in? I was thinking for models, because it's so unpredictable, is there a way to just introduce some randomness into the model that might help account for that? So the human behavior stuff is really interesting. And, you know, some people have been thinking about this in different ways. One way is we were talking a bit about fear. And, you know, when you have a new disease, people respond in, in a way that basically scales with the amount of fear that you have. So you can use infection prevalence as a way to predict behavior. So when you start seeing more cases around you, you behave more cautiously. And so that's sort of a simple way of accounting for behavior, which isn't always correct. But also you can add randomness or what we call in modeling stochasticity, which is basically this noise, which isn't really going to capture the behavior per se, but is going to capture some of that uncertainty. And then people are also using new data sources. So mobile phone data is an example where 
we have things like Google Mobility and in Facebook as well, where they're capturing how people are moving over time. And that's a pretty good proxy for adherence to, to different public health measures. Or at least it was at the beginning of the pandemic, possibly less so now. So you can use these data streams, these novel data streams, to try and get at the human behavior side of things. But again, I think it's always going to be really complicated. Like I'm thinking right here, and I'm, I'm, I'm in Ontario in Canada, and, you know, every week we have announcements from our government about, you know, new policies that are in place, or we're lifting restrictions here, and we're implementing new restrictions elsewhere. And, you know, it, you can't really predict that ahead of time. It's really, it's, it's not random, but it's also not predictable, and it's really tough. The second part of the interview focuses on how scientists, such as Professor Chute herself, communicate with policymakers during the COVID-19 pandemic. She also touches upon the importance of data sharing and science communication with people from various disciplines, such as the government and the private sector. Yeah, I, I totally hear what you're saying. I'm from Toronto, and so it kind of sucks to not know when I can be back home <laughs> again. I have a couple more questions about what you just said. You talked about phone data being a really good proxy for human behavior. And then you've also talked about interacting with policymakers. How does a scientist like yourself interact with all these people in order to work with them to build models that can influence public health decision making? So I'm assuming phone data is from private companies, right? So one question I have is, are they accessible to you? How do you form a partnership with them so you can get this data and put into your model? And second of all, on the policy side of things, you know, who, who do you talk with and how do you work with them? Yeah, so I think a really important part of modeling is that it's very transdisciplinary. So you tend to have people who are really good at math and people who are, you know, clinicians or medical doctors who understand the disease, people working in public health, and you have people who are really good at data science, just to name a few of the disciplines. But, you know, ultimately, you need to be creative because at the end of the day, this is an exercise in synthesizing data. And so being able to build partnerships with people who work in different disciplines, including people who are working sort of in the private sector when it comes to things like mobile phone data is really important. And one thing that's come out of um, the pandemic is that a lot of the mobile phone data providers have been collaborating with academic groups or have been basically providing data sets that are specifically for sort of non-commercial purposes. Facebook has an initiative that, that's really been working with academics to try and make this data accessible. In terms of the, the policymakers, I think this has been, for me at least, a really interesting experience because prior to COVID-19, it's not something that was really a huge part of my job. I mean, I certainly, when I'm doing projects, a lot of times we're working with specific communities and trying to address specific problems. But the idea of trying to feed data to policymakers so that they can make good decisions is unique for me, at least, in terms of this pandemic. And so I can speak a little bit to, to the way that it's worked for, for me at the University of Toronto, which is that we've, in Ontario, we have these academic groups of people who are basically serving on a volunteer basis to, to help with policy. We have a modeling consensus table where we have a bunch of modelers from across the province who we meet once a week and we specifically try to answer questions that people from the provincial government are asking. As part of that arrangement is the government shares data with us because you can't build these models in a vacuum. And so the sort of arrangement here is, you know, we're very happy to help and enthusiastic about helping but we need data. And so that's been a, a really, I think, good arrangement because we're, we're able to help out with the pandemic response and, and provide answers in a timely way um, because we have the support of policymakers. Just out of curiosity, have the models you've made during the pandemic, has like a politician or a policymaker actually like, did they actually take that and make it into a policy? Has that happened for you? 
it's it's an interesting question, and it's not something where I really have a a good answer for you. In the sense that you know we feed information up to to policymakers, but we don't actually get feedback in terms of you know this is what influenced our decisions. But we do know that we've done a lot of work modeling as well as just descriptive epidemiologic analyses, and we know that that information is fed up to set up the sort of food chain in terms of contributing to decisions. I think probably in terms of things that have been impactful is at the beginning of the pandemic. So in like February, March of 2020, we made a model that was basically predicting what we thought the epidemic or the pandemic would look like in Ontario. In the absence of interventions, was predicting what other places were predicting, which was very. High attack rates, large numbers of people getting sick, and I think that helped people understand the the sort of gravity of the situation, and may have led to the initial pandemic response in terms of implementing lockdowns and those really restrictive measures in March, when people were still not entirely sure what was going on, and and thought that you know. Maybe it would have just stayed in China, or it was just going to stay in Europe. And then, as it got closer and closer, it became pretty apparent that we weren't going to escape this. So, I think in that sense, models have helped. But I've never really had a phone call from someone where said, you know, they said, "Thank you for this model. We have decided to do, you know, take action X, Y, or Z." Um, based off of this, would you say that there's like a gap between modelers and policymakers? Then, do you think there's a communication gap? I was wondering if there is a gap. You know, you think a good solution would be for modelers to kind of have more say at the policy side of things. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that this pandemic has really changed that relationship. When I first started modeling, I was in 2009, so it was the H1N1 pandemic, and that relationship with the government wasn't there at all. And so the fact that you know we have this sharing of data and flow of information. I think is great. I think one of the challenges for modelers and for scientists in general throughout this pandemic, I think, has been the communication of uncertainty, which is something that I think scientists are very comfortable with. You know, whenever you present your results, you're always saying, "Well, you know, we we're, we're presenting this with these caveats, and we think that it's this, but we, you need to recognize that there are all of these assumptions that feed into this." And I think sometimes that can be really hard to communicate. It's something that we're not really well equipped to do to sort of communicate with policymakers. You sort of just want to know: should I do X or should I do Y? And so you give this like very long-winded answer, but all of the things that you need to consider. And so I think that sort of intersection between policy and science is an area where, as scientists, we could use better training because it's not something that we're necessarily equipped to do. And so it, it can be really challenging, and you know that ability to succinctly summarize what you're saying and say, based on the best available information, this is probably the best course of action, is something that I, I personally wish I was better at. And I think I've been learning throughout the pandemic, you know, how important that is. Ultimately, the thing that's really important to remember is that, you know, as a scientist, I can provide you with. My judgment, based on my area of expertise, you know, of what I think the best course of action is. But you know, I'm not an elected official, and the people who are making the decisions are weighing those decisions, the health information that you're providing, along with other pieces of information. And so, I think that's something that's really important to remember: is you do your best, but at the end of the day, nobody's elected me to tell you what to tell them what to do. And so you need to be able to step back and say, you know, I disagree with that decision, but it wasn't my decision to make. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know, the New York Times, for example, was kind of reporting on a few weeks ago how the you know scientists are kind of downplaying how awesome it is to be vaccinated and downplaying the efficacy of the vaccine and how it's going to change everything and bring us back to normal. And that was sticking more than the advantages, and they're like, well, maybe this is playing a role in vaccine hesitancy, X, Y, Z. And I'm just like, 
it's a scientist's job to be skeptical and and constantly rethink reality or whatever they they're doing that's trying to capture what reality is. So what you know practices have you found that maybe make it easier you know for you to look past that skepticism that's kind of inherent in your profession and sort of make recommendations in in that way. Yeah, it's really tough and I would say I'm probably not very good at it. <laughs> but because I like to hedge my bets. I don't want to be overly confident in what I say, but I think it's really important. And I think you know, one of the things that's been really interesting to see in terms of how scientists communicate during the pandemic is yeah, first of all, you don't want to be a fearmonger. You want to be able to convey information in a way that, you know, tells people the facts but also isn't alarmist. But on the other hand, you don't want to blow things off or you don't want to be overly optimistic. And I think the vaccines are a really good example of that where I think you're right. I think scientists were too negative in the sense that if you're told that you're going to get this vaccine but you can't change anything despite getting this intervention, you know, well, why get the vaccine? And the reality is that the vaccines work really well. And so I, I think sometimes there's a bit of patronizing that happens in terms of how we convey information to people. We saw this a lot with masks, where there was a lot of talk early on about, well, people won't know how to use their masks. They're going to touch their face and they're going to get infected and it's going to be more dangerous. And, you know, like we don't say that about hand washing. Like maybe not everybody washes their hands for 20 seconds. But you know, most people wash their hands well and we don't worry about the fact that you know they're going to lick their hands and get soap on in their mouth. You know, like we trust people with that. And I think you know throughout this there's been this fear that if you tell people too much good news, then they're going to stop listening to the precautions that we're recommending. And I think that's actually been relatively harmful. And I think some of the best science communicators are people who work in the field of sexually transmitted infections and HIV in the sense that they really understand the world of harm reduction and the idea that there's risk inherent in everything that you do and so being really absolutist about it and telling people that you know you have to do x y or z and if you don't do that then you know you're bad and people don't respond well to that everybody is is individual have unique circumstances and so arming them with the tools that they need to make decisions that you know even if they're not zero risk can at least reduce risk i think is is much more useful than this idea of sort of treating people like infants which again i i don't want to sort of say this as a generalization but i think some of the messaging has been very infantilizing wow that's really profound and i think when it comes to stds i feel like because the the concept of risk is very clear risk inducing behaviors is very very clear so and also it's very binary it's not either you have covid or you don't it's like you're on your way to covid you don't know if it's the common cold you have no idea what's going on so i think that clarity maybe is what the public needed early on so that they could use the tools and recommendations of scientists and experts more effectively and we don't have to rely on infantilizing messages and things like that thank you so much for clarifying that could we have possibly predicted a pandemic like covid-19 i think i read this somewhere that modelers are always modeling events and long-term things happening and with pandemics you kind of model when they arise what to do so have our current models have been able to predict things like H1N1 or would they would it have even been possible to predict something like COVID-19 happening it's a good question i mean i think in general people who work in public health and who work in communicable diseases would say that we knew that a pandemic was coming and we know that this isn't the last pandemic would we have anticipated in 2020 that the virus that would emerge would be SARS-CoV-2 
probably someone somewhere <laughs> predicted that. But you know, in general, the, the specifics are hard to predict, but the general attributes of what a pandemic would look like are predictable. We know that we have increasing interaction with animals and that these sort of zoonotic infectious diseases are, are particularly of concern. I think most people were focused on influenza because that's historically been when we've had pandemics, that that's what we've been concerned about, particularly avian influenza. In terms of predicting precisely, I, I think we're a ways away from that. But we know enough about the conditions under which these sorts of infectious diseases emerge that we can be prepared for them. And I think that's the really important point is if you look at pandemic preparedness, a lot of it was focused on an influenza-like illness. And this pandemic has opened our eyes in terms of thinking you know, beyond influenza. My hope is that we've we sort of recognized, you know, every time there's a big public health emergency, there's initially a lot of interest in investing so that we're better prepared for the next pandemic or the next big public health event. But usually that interest wanes. So I, I wasn't involved in the SARS, the original SARS response, but I'm from Toronto. And we had a lot of commissions after that because we had a lot of SARS cases. And we had a lot of people focused on, you know, how would we be better prepared next time? And we weren't better prepared. And I think part of that was, you know, there was an initial interest in that. And then it's out of sight, out of mind. So when public health is working well, bad things don't happen. And so getting people to fund things so that they don't happen can be really difficult. And so out of this pandemic, what I'm starting to see is that there does seem to be a recognition that there needs to be long-term investment in pandemic preparedness and pandemic readiness and making sure that, you know, specifically within government, I think that there needs to be that capacity within the government to have people who are trained and able to, to help with the response. But again, I guess we can check in in five years and see how sustained that is. I'm not super optimistic. I'm, <laughs> I'm hopeful, but I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I'm hopeful too, just because I don't think I've ever seen a pandemic where, you know, we were under lockdown for over a year. And I kind of hope, I guess, like make people more aware. I mean, I don't know if it will, but as you said, out of sight, out of mind, but I certainly hope that's the case too. I just wanted to thank you for giving us so much insight and really driving home the message of what scientists can do in terms of communicating to the public or communicating with policymakers because I think really the reason why we started the podcast was because I mean for me personally I wanted to learn more about things beyond just working at the bench and just doing data analysis on my computer and thinking about like what sort of impacts scientists can have beyond academia and just to the public in general for people who aren't scientists. So thank you so much for giving us that kind of perspective. No, thank you so much for having me. It was fun to chat. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you co-host. I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room. You're breaking up again, Ellie. The recording has stopped. Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank Science Education and Policy Association for their support.